Hi friends, welcome to Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. I'm excited about these pilot episodes since we began this podcast project. And I'm really grateful to my friend, Jeremy Smith, for being willing to be a part of one of the first conversations. Reverend Jeremy Smith is an elder in the greater Northwest area of the UMC. He's a pastor, partner, parent, blogger, and leading voice in the denomination. He's been blogging at Hacking Christianity for 15 years and is currently the pastor of First United Methodist Church in downtown Seattle. I enjoyed this conversation with Jeremy as he sort of unpacked for us the good news and the bad news as we head into a new year, a year that is sure to bring many twists and turns for the United Methodist Church, particularly in the U.S., but I'm really grateful for Jeremy's framing of this moment. He frames it as the United Methodist Church's longest night and that light is coming. And I think it's going to be really helpful, challenging, but also encouraging for us as we begin to think about what we need to do and more importantly, who we want to be as we move forward as the United Methodist Church. So grab your notebooks. I think you're going to really enjoy this and, and find it as helpful as I did. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, my discussion with Reverend Jeremy Smith. Reverend Jeremy Smith, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing well, my friend Derek. How are you doing out there in Florida? I am good. We are recording this uh, on the third day of Christmas Tide. I believe that that's what it is. So It is. Um, very grateful for your willingness to join me today. Talk about talking about all things United Methodist and the year ahead that we are about to go into. Um, probably going to be uh, an interesting year to say the least uh, for United Methodism. And I was just really grateful uh, that you were willing to just give me a few minutes of your time and let's talk about some of the some of the things that we should be thinking about as we go into this next year as we prepare. Uh, probably for more congregations across the connection to disaffiliate, but also to be thinking about the future of the United Methodist Church. Amen. And gosh, it's it's great to geek out with you today, Derek, and uh, be able to think through these things. Sometimes they process in our heads, and it's always better to process with somebody else. And uh, as we kind, of, you know, I'm in Seattle, you're in Florida. We're kind of you know the longest flight possible uh, between yeah. the two of us, um, but. Uh, it's good to think about the uh, both the spectrum of what Methodism looks like um, in America and globally. Uh, Absolutely, so great thing to uh, be together with you. Thank you for this opportunity. Well, Jeremy, let's just jump right in. Um, I was really grateful that you you because of your blogging and your engagement over. Did, did I hear you tell me fifteen years of this sort of deeper engagement in into the way that our church. Is structured and how we gather. Am I correct in that? With having yep. Christianity uh, in uh, twenty March twenty twenty three is fifteen years of blogging. Gosh, uh, and so many of us are grateful for your work. Um, it's partly why I wanted to get you in in some of the first episodes of this new podcast. So, tell me, what's the good news? What are the things that are really good and hopeful that we, those who intend to stay in the United Methodist Church, and those who are working towards a future for the United Methodist Church, what? What are the good things that we should be thinking about that you think we should be thinking about? 
You know, a week ago was the long uh, from this recording uh, was the longest night uh, service where we mm -hmm. remember that um, the the days that were getting bleaker and bleaker um, have now transitioned into the days that are getting brighter and brighter. And that's the way I think about uh, 2023 for the Methodist Church, for the United Methodist Church, is that uh, we uh, had a rough 2022. Uh, there was a lot of ups and downs, or a lot of unexpected, lots of unknowns, um, huge disinformation campaigns. And uh, so we, we went through, uh, we had a, a lot of uh, churches that were reacting uh, impulsively rather than uh, responding uh, slowly and critically. Um, and a lot of churches that were going to leave anyway. Um, and so I think that, so that's the way how I think about where we are now is that we're in um uh, we're in the time when uh, the days are going to get brighter. We're going to have rough days. We're going to have uh, difficult days. But um, I do think that 2023 is when things start uh, to, uh, we, we, find, we find we're singing a new song um, in the United Methodist Church. And it's just how do we get the word out uh, to more people? Um, I think the reason why I think that is that uh, we really saw the limit of the, we, we saw the, the, the ceiling of the separatist movement's power uh, this past year. Um, I mean, you think about, let, let's wind back the clock to 2018. You know, 2018, um, uh, traditionalists and conservatives, um, uh, they were talking about how they owned the Judicial Council. They talked about how they um, uh, bishops were um, uh, afraid to oppose them, to go against them. Um, they had clergy majorities in our most populous states um, in, in America. And, um, and so they walk into the 2019 General Conference with that attitude, and they squandered it, Derek. Um, and to pass the traditionalist plan, and then they saw everything start to fall apart. You know, they lost majorities in uh, general conference delegations. Um, the, um, especially in the past year, 2022, you know, the Judicial Council has been death on everything that they have wanted, that the traditionalists and, um, uh, you know, WCA, GMC folks have wanted. Right, right, right. I, I, I wonder, why do you think they squat? I mean, what, what, what were, what did they miss? Because um, you know, I would think that at the at twenty nineteen general conference twenty nineteen, like that was that that should have been a new S curve, maybe like if I could say it that way. But you're like we rolled into annual conference season of twenty nineteen, and even in my home conference, Florida, we 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 saw a very strong response. And some might even say a reaction to the passing of the traditional plan. Mm -hmm. So what happened, do you think, between February and June in sort of the WCA camp that was the misstep? What, and we weren't invited to those meetings, obviously. No, we but. weren't. But I don't think the misstep was in between February and June. I think it was walking into that February conference um, with an attitude of hostage negotiation rather than bargaining and rather than conferencing. Mm, you know, I think yeah. they came in with this big traditional plan. And remember, we only passed, you know, maybe two thirds of the traditional plan. You know, the original one, it gave a lot more 
powers and abilities to kick out uh, progressives at the annual conference level. You know, the original legislation could dismiss an entire annual conference. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and so they, you know, and so if we had passed all of it, it would have made, um, it would have strengthened the traditionalist position at every level of the United Methodist Church. Wow. Uh, thankfully, we did not. Thankfully, we voted down some things and some things were removed uh, by uh, judicial council action, you know, things like that. Um, but I think they came in with this attitude of what is their most one of their most recent conferences was called More Than Conquerors mm -hmm. um, because they love their colonial mindset. Um, <laughs> and, they, and, 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 you know, that's just the mentality you come in. It is it is solely on the leadership of the renewal groups. WCA, uh, what would become the uh, GMC, um, that they, um, that instead of coming in with, let's come up with a decision to divide, you know, something like the, um, um, uh, uh, something like the, uh, the protocol, mm -hmm. uh, or, or whatever, you know, then we, you know, again, I, I, of course we're looking back, but the mentality is, you know, you just couldn't, uh, when you're so fixated on your own mentality, you can't, it's hard to step away from it. And right. so that's why I think that there wasn't too much that shifted after that conference. It was just that, you know, it was just that people woke up, the centrists um, and the mega church um, centrists kind of woke up and said, whoa, mm -hmm. we're going to, this is bad. I need to stop, you know, posturing from the middle, at least some of them. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think that that was, um, uh, uh, so I think that it was a wake up call. Um, but it was uh, one that uh, one that I welcomed, um, especially. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think that all that, you know, so you had all these majorities, you know, uh, walking into that. And then you start losing judicial counsel cases this past year. Um, 2022, the bright, you know, one of the bright spots was every anti-gay bishop in America is gone as of January 1st. Mm. Now, there mm. are still... Um, uh, there, there's still an antagonistic bishop, at least one, probably two um, uh, left, um, you mm -hmm. know, going to Mississippi and one other place. Um, but I think that there's, um, but we elected the most diverse class of bishops in America um, in history. Um, and we elected a, a, a female bishop in the Philippines. I mean, there's a lot right. to celebrate yeah. um, in, um, uh, in, uh, in, in that, in the, the Episcopal branch of things. You know. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, one, one piece of good news that we take with us into 2023 is that in, in, in some respects, the, the, what could have been a traditionalist or conservative majority, at least, uh, in, in, in the ways of our structure and, and the way power sort of works out in our structure. We, we saw the limits of it and and and, and it's sort of like if it, it fizzled, uh, I think in some respects, depending on where you are, it, the fizzle maybe it was a little bit slower and not as fizzly, but in, in, in the coming year, I think we'll, we'll be spending less and less of our time trying to keep traditionalists from dominating the United Methodist conversation. And I don't think that for, I know, at least in my jurisdiction, the goal is not to not have traditionalists in our church. No. But the goal is to be in ministry with 
those who have a traditional, uh, what some would call an, a, an orthodox, I, I don't know if that's the best term, but those who hold to a more historic understanding, evangelical historic understanding of Wesleyan theology and how that works out in the United Methodist Church. We'll spend less time trying to keep them from dominating all the spaces and we'll get to spend more time figuring out how to be in ministry with those who hold to those historic Wesleyan evangelical views. Is that, would you agree with me there? I, I agree. I mean, we, I mean, and that happens on the ground all the time. I'm originally mm -hmm. from Oklahoma. I was a member of the Oklahoma Annual Conference until uh, 2014-ish. Um, and they, um, so my first uh, eight years of ministry was a member of the Oklahoma Annual Conference when I was uh, serving um, a, a rural appointment we would do district camps uh, together mm. and the deans would be all very diverse. The curriculum writing teams would be very diverse. And when you're in those rooms together, you know, you find common ground yeah. um, when you're face to face with people, you know, it's this. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, even as loud as the upper levels are of uh, the different renewal groups about um, incompatibility, um, I think that on the ground we find um, a lot more, uh, a lot more in common, and that is why these disaffiliations are so emotional because these are folks that you did camp with, and you can't yeah. believe that their church is being led out of the denomination by, you know, these uh, reactionary forces and separatist powers. Um, so let let's go there because it feels like. That's not going to be good news for us. Uh, the number of disaffiliations and yeah, and yeah. and sort of the the way that that look. I mean, we know that um, the the folks at IRD are definitely keeping a tally. I'm sure that the WCA is keeping their own tally as well. Um, is there any kind of good news in the fact that we have a number of churches, hundreds of churches that are disaffiliating? Um, and intend to disaffiliate over the next year. Is there any silver lining in that piece? You know, I think that there's there's a little bit, um, Derek. I think um, uh, the first is is that uh, with those disaffiliations, it does allow annual conferences to um, to enact policies and procedures and elect delegates um, and leadership uh, that are um, uh, that are more reflective of their new majorities uh, that are more progressive and more. Um, uh, and, and and folks that um, gather respect from all sides of the aisle, you're going to find them, you know, higher higher up, um, which mm -hmm. is great. The, the the point is that um, uh, is that the finances are well. I guess we'll talk finances in just a minute. But um, the the good news is that there's a um, there's a sense that uh, what was um, uh, that there's a sense of inevitability to some of these churches. You know, mm. some of these movements have been have been withholding from Methodism for a long time, both mm -hmm. apportionments and leadership and enthusiasm, you know, of not mm. being um, supportive of connectionalism, of, you know, any of those things um, for a long time. And so removing those voices from inside the house lets us put out those fires a little bit easier. Yeah. So I yeah. think that that's, that's the piece that I'm, uh, that I'm taking, but of course I'm speaking from a privileged place in the Northwest uh, where, you know, the number of churches that are going to disaffiliate, you know, are probably less than a dozen. 
Hmm. Uh, and um, I think that a good uh, a, a good reason for that is that we have learned how to do life together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, you know, it's not across the board, but um, there's going to be a lot of annual conferences that are going to find a new way of what life together looks like when it's more like conferencing and less like hostage negotiation. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your continued image of the longest night. I, I do think that um, possibly for, you know, my hope is that particularly in the southeastern jurisdiction and the south central jurisdiction um, that we are on the other side of the longest night. I, I fear that we may not be as uh, on the other side of, of, of midnight as, as, as much as we would like um, in this region, but... The light is coming. The light is coming, and I do think so. And, and I, 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 I think um, because I've spent, you know, so many years in campus ministry, I, I, I see some opportunities even in the midst of uh, just the heartbreak of seeing colleagues and congregations disaffiliate. One thing, and I'd love to get your take on this, I look at some of the churches that are disaffiliating uh, here in Florida, and one in particular, um, watch this congregation from the time it was planted in the late 90s Mm. to where it is today. And I don't think there was ever an effort for it to be a connectional Mm -hmm. United Methodist Church. From its Mm -hmm. early days, I, I, I just wonder, I, I wonder how, how intentional the distance between that congregation and the annual conference was, because there just seemed to be a lot of distance. And so my thought is, as much as I hate to see them disaffiliate, I am also aware that even in the conversation of 2553, the, their issue with its, their feeling of it being unfair is rooted in a, a lack of understanding of how the UMC actually works. Like, mm-hmm. and in that sense, I don't blame them for thinking that it's unfair because they don't, they, 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 I don't know if there's a book of discipline in their building. Like it, it, it and, <laughs> and, and I don't mean that as, as, as any kind of like shade or anything like that. Like, I, I don't know if they're actually a United Methodist congregation, if they ever were, and so there's a part of me that's like, as much as I hate to see them leave, I'm wondering if it's actually in the best interest. And is this where I get, I possibly get in trouble? But no, I do wonder good. if it's in the best interest of everybody for them to disaffiliate. Because, it, it, yeah. it is. I mean, um, uh, for being a, um, you know, a big tent denomination means that you've got folks at all ends of the tent. Um, yeah. And that there are uh, folks that have intentionally, uh, either for years or decades, stepped outside of the tent in their um, in their uh, practice of connectionalism. You know, mm-hmm. it's not about belief. You know, it's not about um, uh, it, it's it's not about you know you know those sort of things. It's about our practice of connectionalism, and that takes intentionality from. Uh, both the pastor, um, it takes intentionality from the district superintendent and from the conference officials to hold that church accountable when they don't, um, mm-hmm. you know, because there, there are a lot of these churches that if we watched over one another in love a little bit better, hmm. that I think that we would, um, we would have seen all these things coming. Yeah. You know, and been able to 
help and moderate. Um, if the lay if if the lay leaders of that church were connected with the lay leaders of other churches, you know, what could have, uh, how could what could they have absorbed and brought back to their church? Um, because if the lay leadership can't transform a church, there's a problem with that church. Right. You right. know, I mean, I'm speaking to a lay person, so you know, yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm a, yeah, I'm a key lay person in my local congregation, and, and so I, I feel all of these words you're saying. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate your image of the longest night as we're talking about this good news, um, mm. and I and I think that it may be that we have to, um, in in thinking about the good news that we take into 2023 for the UMC, we do have to take it from the perspective of where we are right now that, as you said, the light is coming. It's such mm -hmm. a great, great image. Mm -hmm. So since the light is coming, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what might be the bad news that we need to reconcile, reconcile ourselves to as we go into 2023? You know, um, uh, I remember going through the ordination process, people said, you know, you need to state your convictions and you need to, I was going through it in Oklahoma, which is more conservative. They said, you need to state your convictions and tell us what you really believe. And mm. the reason why they say that is because they want you to, you know, reveal, oh no, he's a progressive. And I'm like, I went to Boston University. Come on. You already knew this. <laughs> I have a blog. You already knew this. Um, but, uh, you know, but it's that clarity and conviction that has a bit of a cost, you know? So mm -hmm. the U S decided its path forward, which is inclusive. And 2023 should be the year that we begin to transition away from worrying about who is leaving and focusing instead on who we can bring in, you know, and how we can do that. Um, and I think the two barriers to that, as we go into, uh, as we're in 2023 um, are around uh, finances and enthusiasm. Hmm. You know, so, you know, kind of the, um, you know, the, the finance piece, you know, with, uh, uh, with, uh, with churches, uh, with, with churches leaving, it's going to be a rough transition period for folks that had um, either large churches leaving, whether they're paying their full apportionment or not. A lot of churches didn't pay their full apportionment. So it's not that big of an impact on annual conference um, uh, operations. Um, it will result likely in larger apportionments for everyone else because, you know, if you're dividing by 300, the annual conference budget, even though you know you're not going to get it, and then you're dividing by 200, the annual conference budget, everyone goes up, you know, and that's just, that's going to be a, a narrative to figure out in 2023. Um, so figuring out those finances, both at the legislative level, at the annual conference level, um, and then uh, trickling up to the general church as they put together what their new budget's going to look like for 2024 and beyond. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, that the finances piece um, is a big one, and it's just time to adjust expectations and for the larger churches to learn from smaller churches' conferences about how, how do they operate. You know, how mm -hmm. does, um, you know, I came from Oregon, Idaho, which has very few uh, conference uh, staff. Um, compared to Oklahoma, where it seems like, you know, every middle-aged white guy, um, it, that's where they retire from, is from mm. the conference. Um, this is a place for real talk, right, Derek? Okay. Yeah, come on. Um, and so it's, so, you know, those, uh, the conferences, you know, so seeing conferences as cushy positions uh, is going to be gone. And so everybody, 
is going to have to, you know, really be fully invested in what's new in method in the United Methodist Church. And so that's going to be, that's going to be a, a rough transition period, but, mm-hmm. you know, um, there are folks to learn from of smaller annual conferences. How do we operate? Um, the I think the journal boards and agencies have gone through this for years and decades with the um, kind of the iron fist that the conservatives and traditionalists had on the boards and agencies on their funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've already had to learn how to do more with less. And I think that that's what we're going to figure out how to do as United Methodists. But it is going to be bad news in the short term, especially 2023, as things really have to get settled um, more for 2024 and 20- and beyond. What what do you see for agencies in that? Um, and then, and also our more global financial apparatus. Like, how how do you think all of that's going to be impacted mm. with uh, this decrease in connectional giving because of disaffiliations and things like that? Sure. Um, you know, I think in the short term, um, some agencies and places are going to pull from their reserves to keep operating going, but that's not a sustainable strategy. Um, I do, but um, I think that uh, overall, um, I think you know because every agency believes in the work that they do, that they figure out how to structure for that work. Hmm. Sometimes that means reducing uh, the number of board members to cut costs. Sometimes that means going to only virtual meetings um, for their uh, board members. I'm on um, I'm on one of the agencies and commissions that has gone to uh, only virtual for um, uh, for their board meetings, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, certainly saves you know a lot of cash. Um, but you know I think that um, but there's also um, needing uh, ways that need to expand um, in the coming years, um, and uh, so I think that. I'm not really sure what it looks like exactly for the agencies um, and commissions. Um, and uh, But I do think that I know that they're filled with people that believe in the work they do mm-hmm. and they're going to figure it out. Yeah. How, how do you think our global giving is going to be impacted? You know, um, every annual, I, you, all, you always have to look at the, at the global um, you have to start locally. You know mm-hmm. what? Uh, what are the? Um, how's the giving happening in our, um, in our churches? Are our churches um, able able to pay their apportionments? Are they able mm-hmm. to um, give to you know our common uh, work together? Um, we saw you know an uptick during the pandemic. Is that sustainable? Um, and uh, what and and what does that look like? And again, if annual conferences are paying their apportionments using reserve funds, that's not a sustainable strategy. Right. right. Uh, and so, um, uh, so I think that global giving um, will continue, but that's only if we deal with the the second problem that I see, which is around an enthusiasm gap. Okay, let's go there because uh, I, I have enough heartburn from the finances. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. That's all. That's all theory. You know, the yeah. enthusiasm really is real. I mean, I think that mm. there is a. Uh, it is, uh, you know, it's that it's that phrase. It is easier to birth new life than to raise the dead. Yeah, um, and that's certainly true in this uh, season where you have churches that are disaffiliating because they see only death in the. United Methodist Church, and they have these wild fields of new life um, with other um, uh, associations or denominations um, or on their own because they were congregational anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that 
there's a, um, uh, uh, it, it doesn't feel good to be the leftovers, hmm. Derek. And that's the, that's the heart um, work that um, the church um, has felt, you know, at various times during 2022. And I hope that 2023 is the year when we uh, start to see, you know, it, we aren't, uh, you know, we aren't the leftovers. This is, this is an Easter moment. You know, we've gone through the dark night. We've gone through the longest night. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've gone uh, through Good Friday, and there is resurrection on the other end. Um, that we are a resurrection people, an Easter people, and uh, that 2023 may be a year of uh, resurrection Sundays, where each uh, each time we get together, we celebrate that. Hey, we you know, there's something new on the on the other side. Yeah, you know, and. Um, and so I, so in, in some ways, um, I don't understand the gap. I think that the BUMC campaign by the, um, uh, by the, um, the UMCOM, 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 mm-hmm. I think has the right intentions, um, and the right strategy because, um, it wasn't an, but we didn't need to focus on who other people were or mm. how other people were being wrong because, mm. It's not. It was never going to be a, you know, marketing contest between the Global Methodist Church and the United Methodist Church. It's going to be between them and the Collegiate Association and the Free Methodists and the Locked Up Methodists and you know all these different, you know, all these different groups. You know, so it didn't make sense to just focus on one. We needed to focus on who we were as a church. It makes sense to me, um, but um, I I haven't seen. Um, uh, uh, but um, I think that the uh, results of that are mixed so far. Mm, mm. Um, and I'm hoping that t- 2023 is a year when we uh, can see who we are, you know, or who we want to be UMC mm-hmm. um, and less the fear of what we lost in yeah. 2022. And so I, I think that we just needed a enthusiasm gap year. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, yeah, everything is going to be just just terrible um, in uh, 2022, uh, but uh, we don't have to stay there. We don't have to stay in that space. We can be proud of our local church and what they're doing. We can celebrate the successes of other churches across our annual conference at the conference level, and we can, um, uh, you know, celebrate the common work that we can do together that even the, the Global Methodist Church can't replicate and won't right. replicate. right. Yeah, I, I I take your point about sort of the limits at times of these of broad campaigns mm-hmm. and their ability to really speak to sort of these felt needs just because they are so broad. And I, I I've said in some meetings that I've been in that I just think that it's hard um, because this is what I've said. There's you know. 12 or 13 million United Methodists, you know, mm-hmm. in the world, and there's 13 or 14 million ways to be United Methodist. Um, and <laughs> at so, least, at least, at least. And so then trying to, uh, to, to, to create a campaign that sort of speaks to all of those different ways of thinking and living and, and ideas of what faith, it's just a hard job. And, and in, in, if anything, it seems to me that the GMC has an easier job uh, mm-hmm. of framing a narrative that works for a very specific type of 
currently United Methodist, soon to not be United Methodist. <clears throat> so that, that, that's a thought there. Um, and then I also wonder, just as far as like the, the enthusiasm gap, I, I appreciate that kind of way of thinking about it too. I, I wonder if some of that is the, the, the exhaustion that has come from the fact that this is not the only polarizing issue happening for U.S. United Methodists oh, at the boy. moment, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and in some respects, I don't know if anybody has really filled their enthusiasm gap. I mean, this last election cycle of the midterms, I, I think you saw the enthusiasm gap in all of the different, <laughs> different yeah. political spaces. Um, and so I wonder if some of that is that, unfortunately, all of these fortunes are, are tied together. Um, and so it is. And people just want the, I think people are most enthusiastic about creating a space where they no longer have to have these conversations anymore. You know, mm. they want to create a space where they don't have to talk about Methodist tension, but maybe they also don't want to talk about, um, you know, a, a, a about systematic race, racism either, you know, yeah. and be away from a, a agency or an annual conference or an obnoxious lay leader that talks about such things, you know, or that talks about, um, inclusion of LGBTQIA plus persons. You know, they, they want, I think we want our snuggle blankets, you know, um, and to be comfort, comforted, um, but that doesn't lead to discipleship. Yeah. That leads to holy solitaries, which is the most like anti-Wesleyan thing uh, that there can be. And so my hope is, you know, my hope is wherever people end up, you know, mm -hmm. they, um, that they don't use this as an excuse to step away from those other critical conversations. I would be thrilled if a church left the Method United Methodist Church and became a loud um, anti-racist um, uh, uh, independent church. Hmm. Do it. That's mm -hmm. amazing, you know. But I fear that a lot of these churches are wanting to walk away from all three conversations simultaneously, and that's not healthy or good. We're going to digest that bad news and uh, yeah. take a quick break. Amen. So, Jeremy, what's top of mind for you? And, and what would you love for United Methodist? Generally, but specifically those who are delegates, um, those who are um, leaders in their conferences, uh, as well as their districts. Uh, what, do you, what are you thinking that we should be paying attention to? Uh, those are great questions, uh, Derek. I think that uh, the first one that comes to mind really goes back to our finances conversation is that, um, you know, as annual conference or figuring out how to balance budgets, I hope that they do so without eroding our connections. I'm a, a big believer that, um, uh, that there is a direct link between bishops that um, pulled back on annual conference obligations of clergy, um, that districts that held back on holding events, um, that annual conferences stopped asking um, and requiring participation by their leaders, um, that there's a direct um, uh, link between um, uh, regions that did that, that sort of 
cut back on our connectionalism, reduce the number of districts, you know, all those different things, had fewer connections with each other, fewer people watching over love. Those are the church. Those are the regions that are going that have had the most disaffiliations. I'm not sure if that's true across the board. I know it's true in Central Texas, hmm. um, and um, I'd love to see uh, more data to see if it's um, if it's others. Because you know, if we, um, you know, I, you know, I, it's not popular, but you know, having more middle management in Methodism is better, not worse. You know, having more district superintendents, more resources at the district level, more opportunities for people in similar mission fields to get together um, rather than centralizing resources at annual conference level to then benefit everybody um, at the same uh, at the same level. You know, I think that that's the those are the ones that tend to get cut the earliest. But I really feel like that that is a that that's a that that's a problem. You know, the district mm-hmm. is a mission field too. And if you don't invest in your mission field, you know, it's not just you know a way. It's not just a bureaucratic way to put things together. It really is a mission field, and we need to treat it like that. It, you know, Derek. I mean, the the conviction that I have is that connectionalism is not lean. Mm-hmm. It's not something we cut back on. It's a necessary expense. To create our life together, especially when our life together is trying to be torn apart by separatist powers. And um, even though we may have theological conservatives that are leaving them or ideological conservatives that are leaving United Methodism, we have plenty of fiscal conservatives across the aisles. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that. Um, connectionalism requires investment. And so what my, the thing to keep in mind uh, this next year is, um, is as we, as folks are trying to balance budgets, that they find ways to do that, that don't diminish our connectional qualities. And that, that is a, that's a tough lift, but um, we've got a ton of smart people in the church that can figure it out and can learn from each other. Wow. How, do we think differently about connectional giving? And in and, and this way, like I get the sense that maybe the, the quote unquote con- fiscal conservatives within that are across the aisle are like, we're, we don't have the funds and so let's just pull back as opposed to if we're going to really fulfill the mission and the, and the purposes that we believe God has called us into, that means we're gonna have to make an investment in, in our denomination, how do, we, how do we get there? How do we begin to think about the future in those ways, that the future is not just, we need more young people, we need more diverse clergy, we also need deeper investment. You know, I think that there's both wisdom from the secular world and there's uh, theological wisdom from the church world as well. In the uh, secular world, whenever you have uh, trouble in a company or corporation, you don't cut the marketing department. Hmm. You know, you keep that, you, you got to keep that one fully staffed. And I think that for um, fiscal conservatives, it's helpful to think of connectionalism as the marketing department. You know, we're hmm. the ones that communicate the values to each other, to hold each other, um, uh, to watch over one another in love. And so I think that cutting back on uh, connectionalism is cutting back on the marketing you know, it's just like in a local church that, you know, cutting staff is cutting marketing um, and cutting connections. Um, and I would hope that um, fiscal conservatives of all 
um, uh, of all ideologies would uh, would see that. Um, but I also think that there is a space this next year um, that I hope that there's more intentional work done on on thinking through these things as Wesleyans and theologically. You know, what are um, uh, what does connectionalism mean to us? What did it mean to Wesley? Um, what are the ways that connectionalism under Wesley was flawed and, and um, definitely needed um, uh, upgrading? Um, mm. And uh, what are the practices of connectionalism that we have now that have led us to a different understanding um, of what of what that looked like? You know, we've seen um, uh, we've seen Wesleyan accountability be so distorted by uh, traditionalists that I think that um, we need some time just to, we just need a reset to figure out what, mm. um, what things are and what we really are, you know? Um, so, you know, so that, so that's sort of the, my first thought to your question, Derek, about, you know, what should we hold in mind is that, um, you know, connectionalism costs money and we shouldn't uh, cut those things from our budget um, in some way. Um, I think the, that's, that's more of an annual conference question. I think for the, um, at the um, level of the episcopacy, you know, with all the bishops uh, working together, new bishops coming in, um, uh, again, the most diverse and inclusive class of bishops we've had mm -hmm. um, in, in at least recent memory. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I'm really excited about that, but I don't want us to squander this opportunity either. You know, we just talked about the traditional squandering their power in 2019. Um, we've got a moment here um, when um, the bishops could say as one voice, we will no longer enforce the anti-gay provisions in the discipline. Boom. You know that there is sin at the heart of the discipline. You can't spell discipline without sin. Um, mm. and, you, and there's something, there are these seven lines or whatever uh, that we will no longer enforce, that we've been led by the Spirit to do this. Mm. Um, and of course, that's easy for me to say, not at the bishop's table, but if they really want to, um, if they really want to show that, you know, the, that um, the church, the church in the U.S. has chosen the direction of inclusion. Mm. Um, and it would be nice to do, um, to, to just say, well, if the church has chosen this, then we're going to um, we're going to be the ones that put it into practice. Um, and of course, that doesn't take out everything. It doesn't take out some of the funding things. But gosh, if the bishops would say that as one voice, I think we'd be in a much better position going into twenty twenty four. Again, as people who have clarity around our convictions, yeah, you know, I'm very happy. Um, to, I'm very happy to do that. I, I have a less uh, um, I, I'm, uh, I would love to see them be less, have less dallying with the separatists, you know, mm. less, you know, accommodating of them. Um, but, um, that may be an unrealistic, uh, expectation. Mm. Um, uh, but, um, you know, we can't, we can't all have a, a former Floridian, uh, North Georgia, uh, Bishop, uh, uh who's, um, uh, in, uh, in, oh, and Bishop Sue's going to, uh, We're going to Virginia uh, now. Virginia. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. And, and Florida is getting Virginia's nominee, Tom Berlin. There you go. Um, All right. Robin Deese is actually headed to North Georgia, which was a bit of a, a wild card, uh, this year at Southeastern Jurisdictional Conference. Um, that's really, 
I, I, I appreciate that you name and I, I try to name, you know, I'm not a bishop, not even clergy. Um, and so, you know, my desires or my suggestions to how I think the episcopacy should work um, really comes from a place of not knowing the pressures of, of what it means to be a bishop, the, the variables that they're holding. But I, I do wonder, you know, there was so much excitement around this class mm-hmm. of, of nominees that were elected to the Episcopacy, uh, uh, not just in the US, but I, I think across the global connection of the UMC, I think that there was some appreciation for the individuals who, who were elected. So, I, and I guess this kind of gets to that enthusiasm gap. That to me feels like a, a bit of a height in the yeah. enth- uh, uh, as far as enthusiasm across the connection. And, and yet I do fear that um, these incredible individuals, this super diverse class um, sort of rolls into the Episcopacy and is, and again, this is said from a person who's not in the room at all, um, but sort of sinks into a, a, um, a, 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 a passivity that we've seen in some of our Episcopal leaders. Not all, not all of our Episcopal no, leaders. No, you're right. And so the Episcopal leaders that are listening, you can put yourself in the category of the not all. Because uh, <laughs> I'm not talking about you. Listen uh, to this podcast, you are not all. <laughs> you're not, but, but yeah. like, we, we've seen that, that like some, I, I, I feel like this has been the narrative that sometimes these individuals sort of on their road to their long road, years of service and ministry, that that then takes a new phase at the episcopacy. There's a there feels like a passivity that sometimes we at least that's the experience of many of us on the ground. So what what do you what do you I I, I and I think you agree with me on this. How do how do how might we um, on the ground help not just the new class of leaders but but all of our bishops. Reject yeah. that passivity. Yeah, the I mean, it really is a lot of work with our established leaders. You know, who are mm-hmm. the who are the active bishops that have been around for a while um, that can now see a new possibility. Hmm. You know, just um, you know the 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 incoming class of bishops. I'm not as concerned about them, um, but um, it's the folks that know and understand what it means to be a bishop. You know, for the past you know at least six years. You know, what does that uh, what does that look like, mm-hmm. um, and how mm-hmm. can they, um, and how can they practically put things into action? And so I think that um, it's really up to our annual conferences, our annual conference leaderships, to talk with the bishops who uh, maybe aren't moving. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they are in the same places. Maybe they've been a bishop for a while, um, or they've just been a bishop for six years, and say this is the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. this. You know, there's. You know that we've got a, um, you know, you, what's the what's the Lin Manuel uh, line? You know, it's uh, yeah. it's not a Don't moment. Throw... Movement, you know, well, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But this actually is the moment for the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so how? So I really think that the change of heart has to come from established relationships with their established bishops and saying, look, you know, if you step out this way, I'm there for you. You know, mm-hmm. our annual conference mm-hmm. is going to be behind you. We have a new annual conference with um, uh, less uh, people. <laughs> 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 um, what a, you know, 
um, we want to stand with you. So I really think that, you know, as you, as you, Derek, as you meet with other conference leaders, it really is how can you provide that assurance to our Episcopal leaders that if they step out, that they've got their conference behind them. Yeah. You know, and that yeah. really, I really think that work needs to be done with established leaders and established relationships rather than expecting the new people to do everything. You know, wow. we saw, we see that in the House of Representatives with a mm -hmm. fiery new class that um, uh, was able to push things, but wasn't able to, you know, get past the more uh, moderate um, hierarchy in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, but um, we're still able to find the celebrations together. Oh. Um, yeah, so I, I think know. that, you know, working with the bishops, you know, is really important. Um, I think working with um, annual conference, you know, budgets and uh, um, preserving our connectionalism is really important. Um, you know, I, I guess I do have one more question that I'm still I'm still trying to figure out myself, Derek, is to mm -hmm. um, is uh, is is trying to find clarity on whether annual conferences can fill vacancies in mm -hmm. their general mm -hmm. conference delegations. You know, um, we just had the Judicial Council said that um, we did not have to have new elections, which is great. Um, the um, General Conference has not called for new elections. So no, you know, no, like new elections of our current delegates. Um, but there's still the question of vacancies. Yeah. And we fill uh, vacancies um, and especially in annual conferences that have just, you know, lost a lot of folks, you know, or, um, um, you know, again, uh, the overall, we have there has not been a mass exodus out of United Methodism. There have mm. been very there's some, been some really deep pockets um, that have lost um, folks. Um, but you know, I think at the end of the year, there's something like 2,500 churches out of 33,000 churches. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. that's um, that's significant, but it's not a mass exodus. Right. So anyway. Side note. Yeah, um, <laughs> I appreciate that 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 statistic because that, yeah, that's really yeah. th those numbers rather because that really does help shape. I mean, you hear yeah. twenty five hundred churches like, oh my gosh, twenty five hundred of thirty three thousand. Yeah, um, it's 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 not as wow. It's no, wild. it's not as well. You know, yeah. um, um, and yet in some regions like in uh, Central Texas and uh, Northwest Texas, it, it's a it's a, a huge percentage of them. Yeah, you know, yeah. and. Um, uh, but we've already talked through about, you know, how much those folks were actually contributing to connectionalism in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, and, um, and just the opportunities now for new church plants in those regions that no longer have a United Methodist church in them, what yes. new things could be created, um, so that we also have that, uh, that enthusiasm around something new. So I, I'm excited about those things, Derek. Um, but, um, <laughs> again, side notes, no, um, back good. to the you know, that sort of question about um, how do we, there are empty seats at the table mm -hmm. and are we able to fill them mm -hmm. um, by um, having elections about, you know, individual seats um, and reserves and things like that. Cause some conferences have gone through all their reserves, you yeah. know, um, and because the people who uh, disaffiliated uh, laity members of those churches or clergy that are leaving and, uh, you know, they no longer should have a voice in United Methodism, but that doesn't mean that we should have no voice at all at the table. Right. So my hope is that we find some clarity around that, because I really think that kind of um, having annual conferences be more 
um, intentional about connectionalism, um, having annual conferences, being intentional about who their leaders are um, and their delegates, um, and then bishops being more intentional about their convictions. I think those are all those are all things that I hope that uh, conference leaders uh, keep in mind and as they um, as they lead uh, through 2023. And Derek, you're one of them that's um, offering that leadership, and so I'm certainly in. Uh, prayer for you as you do that as well. Man, Jeremy, I appreciate just the time you've given today, and I'm aware of our time, uh, so I don't want to hold you too much. There's so much that we have talked about, and yet so much that we could be could have you know added to the plate. And but I think this is a good sort of primer to get us into the new year. Um, I'm I'm curious. I, I want to know if you've got any final thoughts that you'd like to put on the table for us um, as as we come to a close. And would also love to just hear, you know, your vision, hope for the future of the UMC, specifically in the U.S. Um, I think that that would be really cool to hear as we uh, end this episode. So any final thoughts and then your vision for the future? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that uh, 2023 is the year where we start to embrace abundance instead of scarcity. Mm. We look at... 2022, the narrative was all around who we lost and what we lost and who is leaving and, you know, all those things, which are which are true and emotional, of course. But um, we are a people um, of a we're a people of abundance yeah. um, and, of, and of an abundance of grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would uh, if we have been um, to focus just on the numbers and the money and the politics, uh, that's that's not what we need. You know, we need to mm-hmm. be clear eyed about those things. Um, but you know, my hope is that we focus more on the abundance. Um, it would, I would love to, um, see more investment in, you know, theological, theological, um, guidance, um, and, um, uh, uh, around, uh, you know, sort of what's, what's the Wesleyan way at this moment. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that's close to my heart around, uh, Wesleyanism is, um, is Wesleyan accountability, you know, it's right. been so distorted and weaponized in recent decades by uh, churches that are um, uh, that uh, that have that have uh, sent uh, churches and individuals that you know issue charges across annual conference lines. You know, there's a mm-hmm. charge right now against uh, my bishop, uh, my new bishop, uh, coming into um, uh, the um, uh, the Greater Northwest Episcopal Region, um, uh, Bishop Cedric Bridgeforth, um, and um, and it's, and it was issued by, you know, folks in the South Central and Southeast and, uh, some, a few folks in, um, uh, Illinois' Great Rivers. Hmm. And so I'm just like, you know, that's not Wesleyan accountability. You know, right. Wesleyan accountability is face-to-face. Mm-hmm. So my mm-hmm. hope is that as we enter this new year, that, uh, we, uh, both realize how parts of our Wesleyan um, heritage have been distorted and weaponized to hurt people and to um, enforce conformity um, and instead um, to um, go back to what Wesleyan accountability really means, which is watching over one another love, which is face-to-face relationships and accountability. And um, gosh, those those are things that are, that are really hard to do. Um, mm-hmm. When the system, you know, it's really hard to have personal growth when you're sick, um, and so when you're battling a um, uh, when, when you're battling something that takes you out of sorts. And so my hope is that 
um, as we go into 2023, that we choose that abundance and we choose that um, those celebrations um, and ways to get back to take advantage of being a smaller denomination uh, that lets us, you know, have more things face to face, that mm-hmm. lets us, you know, value our relationships more, the quality rather than the, I want us to be a church that celebrates the quality of our Wesleyan relationships rather than the quantity of people in our pews. You know, that just, that doesn't That's, work. that is, you know, and, and that then, is beautiful, Jeremy. Sorry, keep going. That was no, that was just, no, no, uh, no. I'm, I'm. That, that was it. That was the soundbite. <laughs> gosh, that uh, was beautiful. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, that. So that that's the thing that I'm, I'm most uh, excited about, um, in 2023, um, and I'm and I'm really looking forward to the other folks on the podcast that also, mm. um, bring forth those things as well. I'm going to be really interested to listen, um, in these coming weeks. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jeremy. Wow. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, the ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.